Welcome to Divine Truth Podcast with Dr. Stephen M. Huffman. Michael is a senior pastor with Emmanuel Baptist Church in beautiful Central Virginia. The purpose of this podcast is to teach and edify God's people through a verse-by-verse exposition of God's Word. To learn more about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. And now, here is Pastor Michael Huffman. chapter number one Philippians chapter number one and after you have found that out of respect for God's word if you would please stand as we read our text Philippians chapter number one uh, beginning in verse number one Paul and Timotheus the servants of Jesus Christ To all the saints in Christ Jesus which are at Philippi, with the bishops and the deacons, grace be unto you and peace from God our Father and from the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God upon every remembrance of you, always in every prayer of mine for you all making request with joy. For your fellowship in the gospel from the first day until now, being confident of this very thing, that he which hath begun a good work in you will perform it until the day of Jesus Christ. Even as it is meet for me to think this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, How greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. This is the word of God. Let's pray. Father, we thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray, Father God, that you would teach us your truth today. We praise you in Christ's name. Amen. Thank you very much. You may be seated. The opposite of joy is depression. And many people suffer from depression. In fact, the the level of depression amongst Americans is actually a staggering number. In fact, recent statistics from the National Institute of Health say that 35 million people, 35 million Americans suffer from depression. That's 16% of Americans' population. Now, depression can have a variety of meanings because there are different types, different types of depression. Clinical, clinical depression as a disorder is not as the same as mood fluctuations, such as feeling sad or feeling disappointed and frustration that, that everyone experiences from time to time and can last anywhere from minutes to a few moments to a few days. Clinical depression is a more serious condition that lasts weeks to months and sometimes even years. There was an article in the, in the, in the, called A Woman in the Magazine, A Woman's Guide to Depression, that said this Depression is on the rise. People born after 1950 are ten times more likely to experience depression than their predecessors. Those between ages 25 and 45 have the greatest percent 
percentage of depression. Though adolescent groups have the fastest rate of depression growth. And according to those same statistics, women are twice as likely to experience depression as men. According again to the National Institute of Health, depression causes inestimable pain for both those enduring the disorder and persons closest to them. It is said that depression destroys the victims, the lives of the victims and their family members unnecessarily, while most sufferers of depression do not ever seek help. Depression is different from sadness. Sadness is a God-given reaction to loss that serves to slow people down so that they can process the grief. When one is sad, self-respect remains intact. Intrinsic hope is maintained and relief comes after crying, receiving support, and fixing our eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. Although depression can also be cured by fixing your eyes on the Lord Jesus Christ. There are four different types of depression. First of all, there is what's called clinical or major depression. And this type of depression is distinct in that its symptoms are so severe that it can disrupt one's daily routine. The second kind of depression is called dystemic depression. That's a chronic, low-grade kind of depression. The third kind of depression is what's called bipolar disorder, or what's been previously known as manic depression, and that's the type of mood disorder that can have different changes as to its effect. In other words, with this type of depression, a person can experience periods of euphoric elatedness at one moment, and then at the next moment be contrasted by several major feats of depression. Fourth is what's called sad Seasonal affective disorder. And this is a severe onset of winter blues when one experiences depression most often occurring because of a lack of sunlight. Now that's all worldly advice. That's all worldly statistics. None of those things have anything to do with the child of God. Most of you are wondering where is the pastor going with this this morning? But that's what the world thinks of depression. That's the world's statistics. And while we don't want to downplay the the reality of depression, because the Word of God does say something about depression, in Proverbs chapter 5 and verse 25 it says this, Hardness in the heart of man maketh it stoop, but a good word maketh it glad. The Word of God is clear that there are times when the heart is heavy and makes it stoop or causes it literally in the Hebrew to be flat or oppressed or sadly depressed. And though we understand from Scripture that there is something that is called depression, that the heart of man can be oppressed, the heart of man can be depressed, We need to understand the markers of depression. 
Because depression, folks, is the very opposite of the life of joy that Jesus Christ wants us and gives us the ability to have. In fact, Jesus Christ said in John chapter 15 and verse number 11, He says, These things have I spoken unto you, that my joy might remain in you, and that your joy might be full. And the major problem of why so many Christians, I believe, suffer from depression is because they see it through the circumstances of life and through what they can produce in themselves. But Jesus Christ is very clear that it is His joy that becomes our joy. It is not our joy, folks, that we produce in us. It is His joy first that then becomes our joy. Further, Jesus said in John chapter 17 and verse 13, And now I come to thee and speak these things in the world, that they might have, what? My joy fulfilled in themselves. So folks, listen. Joy is an expression of our, of our, in our life of Christ that is not based on circumstances, but is based upon a firm, changeless relationship with the changeless one. The problem, reason Christians don't experience joy is because our joy is based on changing circumstances of life. But when your joy is based on Christ, Christ doesn't change. And so therefore the level of your joy shouldn't change because it's on, it's based on the changeless one because it's His joy. It's not ours. You don't have the ability to have joy. It's His joy. Galatians 5.22, joy is a fruit of the Spirit. It's not a fruit of you. It's a fruit of the Spirit. And as we reside and rest and trust Christ, His joy will be produced in us by the power and the person of the Holy Spirit. I want you to notice this morning, by way of introduction, several things that, that, that add to the factor or the, or the existence or the lack thereof of joy in a Christian's life or in a believer, supposed believer's life. First and far, probably far most important Thing that the thing that takes away joy out of people's lives is false salvation. False salvation. Because Christianity has always included those people that are not truly saved. And because they do not have the indwelling Holy Spirit, there is no joy. They may attend church. They may hear the Word of God preached. They may fellowship with other believers. If, but if they do not know the Lord, they do not have and cannot ever experience Holy Spirit joy. And many people that claim to be Christians who don't experience joy are not Christian, are not, do not experience joy because many times they are, they are not truly born again. That's why Paul encouraged the Corinthians. In 2 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 5, he says this, examine yourselves to make sure that you are in the faith. Because folks, listen, people that are not truly born again cannot have joy because joy is a gift of God given to those who are indwelt by the Spirit. A second factor that hinders joy in people's lives is the influence of Satan and his demons. 
You know, as Christians, we don't take Satan seriously, do we? We don't take demonic oppression seriously. But the Bible says in 1 Peter chapter 5 and verse 8, Peter says, be sober, be serious-minded, be vigilant, be careful. Why? Because your enemy, your adversary, the devil, as, as a roaring lion, he walks about, and how does a lion walk? He walks about stealthily, hunting his prey. As a roaring lion walks about, seeking whom he may devour. And the believer that gives themselves the worldly pleasures, worldly entertainments, and yes, in churches sometimes, worldly worship, and they open themselves up to worldly counsel, are opening themselves up to demonic oppression that can bring about depression. The third fact that robs believers of joy is an inadequate view of God's sovereignty. Listen, for a believer, listen to me carefully, for a believer to fret and fear over their circumstances and to worry about what the future will hold is tantamount to doubting God's sovereignty and power. And church, listen, we need to realize what the Apostle Paul said in Romans chapter 8, verse 28, that all things work together for good. And we know this, that all things work together for good to them that love God, to them who are the called according to His purpose. And in probably one of the most cherished promises given by our Lord to His people in John chapter 14 and verse 1, Jesus says, let not your heart be troubled. Don't worry. Don't fret. Don't fear. Don't let your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you. And if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am there you may be also. Listen to me, church. For a believer, the sovereignty of God is the overarching and all-encompassing reality that holds everything in perspective. If I didn't believe that God was in charge of this whole deal, I'd have jumped off the roof of the building a long time ago. Right? But the, the fact that God is sovereign is the overarching reality that holds all the deal together. But Christians, don't, but Christians lack joy because they lose sight of the absolute sovereignty of God. Because a belief in that sovereignty is what gives us the utter confidence. And we can therefore exclaim with the psalmist in Psalm 55 verse 22, Cast thy burden upon the Lord, and He shall sustain thee. He shall never suffer the righteous to be moved. When that reality is gone, church, joy is gone. Joy is gone. A fourth element that steals joy is prayerlessness. Prayerlessness. Listen, church, believers who do not pray inevitably lose sight of God's sovereignty, love, and care for us. And such, and such believers either lose hope or they seek help from other sources. Now, there are times when it is proper and right, according to James Chapter 5, verses 14 and 16 through 16, it is appropriate to call on the elders of the church for help. But folks, listen to me very clearly. Nothing takes place of the believer's own time alone with the Father. 
And I guess probably the fifth cause of a lack of joy in the life of a believer is the emotional low that frequently accompanies an emotional high. The emotional low that frequently accompanies an emotional high. We see this very clearly in the life of Elijah when he, when he had that battle with the prophets of Baal in 1 Kings chapter 18. I'm not going to go into it. You know what happened. And then after Elijah had that great victory over the prophets of Baal, when all the prophets of Baal were silent, God spoke and God showed that he was the one and only true God. When Elijah had that great victory over the prophets of Baal, then came the low. In 1 Kings chapter 19, beginning in verse 3, And when he saw that, he arose, and he went and went for his life, and came to Beersheba, which belongeth to Judah, and left his servants there. You remember what happened? You remember what happened? He was told by Jezebel that by this time tomorrow, you're a dead man, Elijah. You're a dead man. But he himself went a day's journey into the wilderness. And he came, the Bible says, and he sat under a juniper tree. And he requested for himself that he might what? Die. And said, it is enough. It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life. For I am not better than my fathers. And although your highs and our highs and lows may not be as dramatic, most believers experience similar kinds of spiritual successes and letdowns. And these times, if we're not careful, can become so bewildering that they can rob us of our joy. A sixth way that we lose our joy is to focus on circumstances. To focus on circumstances. You know, folks, the Lord has blessed us abundantly, hasn't he? I didn't hear you. The Lord has blessed us abundantly. But even though the Lord has blessed us abundantly, so many Christians are still dissatisfied with their circumstances of life. But the contentment that the Lord offers, the joy that the Lord offers, is not a contentment or joy that can be brought on by the world. Jesus said in John chapter 14, verse 27, Peace I leave with you, my peace I give to you. Not as the world giveth, give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. It's His peace. It's His joy. It's not the peace and joy of your circumstances. They belong to Him. Paul no doubt kept this promise in mind as he focused his attitude toward non-eternal things or non-earthly things. In Philippians chapter 4, verse 11, not that I speak in respect of want, for I have what? Learned. He didn't gain this moment of salvation. He said, I have learned that in whatsoever state I am, therewith to be content. I know how to be, how to be abased. I know how to abound. Everywhere and in all things I am instructed both to be full and to be hungry, both to abound and to suffer need. The second element of something that robs believers' joy is ingratitude. Ingratitude. Few things, folks, in the life of a believer that are more repugnant is the attitude of ingratitude. Paul commanded that prayers... Always be made with thanksgiving. Never the attitude of dissatisfaction, discontentment, or a spirit of entitlement. 
In 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, Paul says, In everything give thanks, for this is the will of God in Christ Jesus concerning you. When somebody ever asks me how I know, Pastor, the will of God for my life, one of the first things I say to you, to them, I take them to 1 Thessalonians chapter 5 and verse 18, and I say, are you thankful? Because we know that's the will of God for your life, to be thankful. The eighth cause of lack of joy is forgetfulness. Forgetfulness. What do you mean, Pastor, by forgetfulness? Forgetting what God's done for you. Forgetting all of his benefits, forgetting all of his blessings. Listen, folks, forgetting the Lord is not a mark of innocence. It's a mark of faithlessness and sin. David reminded himself and reminded all believers in in Psalm 103, verse 2, Bless the Lord, O my soul, and forget not all his benefits. The ninth factor for lack of joy is living with uncontrolled feelings. Living by the flesh and not living by the Spirit will, and fulfilling the desires of the flesh will give you a heart that's lack, that has a lack of joy. Paul said in Galatians chapter 5 and verse 16, This I say then, walk in the Spirit and you shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh. And a tenth and final reason for the lack of joy is an unwillingness to accept or give forgiveness. Somebody said to me one time, well, I just, I, just, I just can't believe that God would ever forgive somebody like me. Let me say something to you, folks. On the surface, that, seems to, that attitude seems to appear to reflect humility, but nothing is farther from the truth. It's actually an attitude of pride. In fact, it's an insult to the righteous character and clear teaching of the Word of God. Jesus said in Matthew chapter 6, verse 14, If you forgive others for their transgressions, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others, then your Father will not forgive you. In Psalm 103, verse 12, the psalmist said, As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. And in 1 John chapter 1 and verse 9, if we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Listen, you want to see a child of God that is filled with doubt, that is filled with joylessness, then you have a child of God that doesn't see and doesn't believe they're forgiven and doesn't give forgiveness. They will be a person that doesn't have joy. God wants you to have joy. In fact, joy is a command. Rejoice. It's an imperative. Rejoice in the Lord. Philippians 4, 4. Always. And again, I say what? Rejoice. It's an imperative. It's a command that we have joy. Now, that was my introduction. Paul, in our passage, gives us some basic elements of his joy. As he looked, as he thought about the life of the Philippians, and this whole book is about joy, and keep in mind that where is Paul when he wrote this book? He's under house arrest, chained to a Roman soldier, a Roman centurion, 24 hours a day, and he writes a letter about how to rejoice in the Lord. What better way, what better authority to write about how to rejoice in the Lord than from somebody that's in the most the least joyful circumstances. 
and he writes a letter about joy. If you look on the back of the bulletin, we've got the outline there. Paul wrote, first of all, about the joy of recollection. Paul says, every time I think of you, I think about you with joy. Yes, I know the church has problems, and we'll, we'll see those as we go out through the book. But Paul says, by and large, whenever I think of you, I think of you with joy. Then he looked at the joy of intercession. I find joy in the privilege of being able to pray for you. And then Paul says he found joy in participation. You are my partners in the gospel. You are my partners in this work, and I find joy in that. And then Paul said the joy of anticipation. Lord, I'm so thankful, Paul says, and it gives me so much joy to know that what God has started, he is not going to stop until it's completed. And it will not be completed until the day we see Jesus Christ. Folks, I want you to understand today and always hold on to this truth that you who have been called by God are securing God. God will never let you go. If you could lose your salvation, you would lose your salvation. It is not your faith that holds on to Him. It is He that holds on to you. It is not, his, it is not your faith. It is His faith that He gives you. It is not your grace. It is His grace. For by grace are you saved through faith. And that is not of yourselves, Paul says. It is a gift of God. Both grace and faith are both the gift of God given by a sovereign God to His people that when we repent, we are continually secure in the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ. And what He started, He will complete. And Paul says, therefore, I have joy because I am looking forward to what God is doing in you. Because he's promised not to stop. And number five, the joy of affection. The joy of affection. Look at verse seven. Paul says, even as it is meet for me to thank this of you all, because I have you in my heart, inasmuch as both in my bonds and in the defense and confirmation of the gospel, ye are all partakers of my grace. For God is my record, how greatly I long after you all in the bowels of Jesus Christ. In these verses, Paul's joy really reaches a crescendo as he presents to us the fifth element of his joy. Listen, church, there could be, in my estimation and in the estimation of the Apostle Paul here, there could be no greater or more exhilarating joy than what is produced by deep, abiding, genuine affection for each other. I want you to notice what Paul says in verse 7. Look at that one more time. Or look at it again. It's not the only time. Look at it again. Paul says in the first part, even as it is me for me to think that this of you all. Stop right there. The word meat there in that text, the chaos, and it denotes, it's a word that denotes something that's just, that's just appropriate. The Greek language expresses a, a moral and, and spiritual rightness. Not merely that is what is expected, but what, that is what is required. Listen, church, it is only right that we feel about each other the way that the Apostle Paul felt about the believers at Philippi. In fact, love looks this way. 1 Corinthians chapter 13 and verse 7. Notice what the Apostle Paul says about true love. It does what, church? It bears all things. It believes all things. It hopes all things. It endures all things. 
And that's the kind of love, that's the type of deep affection Paul had to the church of Philippi. And it's also the type of deep affection Paul had to the people of Corinth. In 2 Corinthians chapter 7, for example, in verse 3, Paul says, I speak not this to condemn you, for I have said before that ye are in our hearts. With all of the problems that the church of Corinth had, Paul says to them, you are in my heart. And Paul's affection for the church of Philippi begins to gush in, in Philippians chapter 4 and verse 1. Therefore, my brethren, dearly beloved, and long for my joy and crown, so steadfast in the Lord, my dearly beloved. What a beautiful example of love. And that's what brought Paul joy. You say, well, Pastor, how can it bring me joy by loving other people? I don't see how it can bring me joy by loving other people. That's because your focus is on you. That's because your focus is on worldly, carnal things that bring joy, not heavenly, spiritual things that bring joy. Because if our focus was on heavenly, spiritual things that brought joy, we would find absolute joy and contentment in loving each other. We see a beautiful example of this kind of love that the church at Philippi had for Epaphroditus. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 26, For he longed after you all, and was full of heaviness because that ye had heard that he had been sick. I mean, we've got so much mutual love going here. The Philippians were concerned about Epaphroditus because he was sick, but Epaphroditus was more concerned for the Philippians that they were worried about he was sick more than he was concerned about him being sick. That makes sense? Is your head spinning? And that was a kind of example of an affectionate love that we should have for one another. And Paul says, this is just the right thing to do. Listen, having this kind of affection for one another, listen church, leaves no room for arrogance. Leaves no room for pride. Having this type of love and affection for one another leaves no room for judgment. No room for, bi for bias. But what it does leave room for is the same attitude that Christ had. In Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, Paul says, Let this mind be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. And it is required that you and I have this type of affectionate love for one another. And Paul says, this is just right. This is just right. This is just the right thing to do. And Paul found elements of his joy in the right feeling for the believers at Philippi. Now look at verse 7 again. I want you to notice the word think in our text. First, it's meet that I should think this way of you all. It's uh, from Neo in the Greek, and it has the idea to think on, uh, to set one's mind on, or, or to have a particular mental disposition. It refers to the act of the will or the intellect. I want to give you by some verses here to kind of give you an idea of the way that the word think from Philippians 1.7 is used throughout Scripture. I love it when I can take a Greek word and chase it down through the New Testament, and it kind of gives you a full color of how the word is used. For example, in Matthew chapter 16, verse 23, but he turned and said unto Peter, this is the opposite extreme of what we're talking about, but you kind of get the idea, but he turned and said to Peter, get thee behind me, Satan, 
For thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And the word savorest there in our text is the word phroneo, and it can be translated, set your mind on. And the indictment of the Lord to Peter is, is that the disposition of Peter's mind at that moment was not set on the things of God, but was set on the things of the, of the world. It, it was the worldly, carnal things that occupied Peter's mind. In Romans chapter 8, verse 5, For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh. And of course, the word mind there is the same Greek word for neo. And, it, and Paul is saying that an earmark of the flesh is when someone's mental disposition is set on carnal things. In Romans chapter 12 and verse 3, For I say unto you, for I say, through the grace given unto me to every man that is among you, not to what? Think more highly of himself than he ought to think of others. But to think soberly, according as God hath dealt to every man the measure of faith. Paul uses the same Greek word for neo twice in verse 3. Once how we should not think, and the second of how we should think. We, our mental disposition, how we think, folks, should not be set on ourselves, but, but, but should be set on other people. And that's why Paul follows up in Philippians chapter 2, verse 5, you let this mind, this phroneo, be in you, which was also in Christ Jesus. You had this attitude. You had this way of thinking. You had this proper affection toward one another and it all boils down to this back in verse 7 where Paul says this the middle part of verse 7 because I have you in my heart Paul says I, I, think, of, I think on you the right way I have a deep affection for you because why verse 7 I have you in my heart let me ask you a question today. Do you have your brothers and sisters at Emmanuel Baptist Church, do you have them in your heart? Do you have them in your heart? The, the, the word heart is the Greek word cardia, is where we get our English word cardiac. And in the scripture, when it uses the word heart, it's not talking about the muscle that's pumping your blood. It's talking about the seat of your physical, mental, and emotional life. Everything that is said to be true about a person originates from the heart. The Scripture speaks much about the heart. In 1 Thessalonians chapter 2, verse 17, But we, brethren, being taken from you for a short time in presence, but not in heart. Even though, Paul says, even though I was removed from you in, my, in the physical state, you never left my heart. And Solomon says in Proverbs chapter 4 and verse 23, Keep thy heart. With all diligence, for out of the issues of life, listen to me, child of God, the deep-seated person of who you are is in your heart. The deep well of your emotions is in your heart. And the and psalmist says, you need to guard that heart, because out of the heart comes the wellspring of who you are. In Psalm Proverbs chapter 3, verse 5, trust in the Lord with all thy heart, and lean not into thy own understanding. Jeremiah chapter 29 and verse 13. You shall seek me and find me when you search for me with all your heart. When you search for God with everything in you, God promised Israel, when you search for me with everything in you, then you'll find me. In Psalm 119 verse 11, Thy word have I hid in my 
heart that I might not sin against thee. Listen, the Word of God is to be treasured in the deep reserves of your person, deep down in your soul. And Paul says to these people, I literally, I love you in my gut. I love you in my gut. You say, well, Pastor, some people are hard to love that way. Right? You say, Pastor, some people I go to church with are hard to love that way. Some of you may say, Pastor, you're hard to love that way. What are you laughing about? But that's not the requirement, is it? Paul didn't say that I love you in the deep wellspring of my heart. Paul didn't say I have you in my heart because you're such nice people. Listen, church, Paul says I have you in my heart. Why? First part of verse 7. Notice it in context. Paul says I have you in my heart. Why? Because it's just the right thing to do. You haven't met any qualifications for me to love you that way. It's just the right thing to do. And while loving, while going up to somebody, I wouldn't necessarily recommend it. While going up to somebody, I, I've never one time went up to my wife, especially while we were dating, and looked at her and said, you know, Julie, I love you in my gut. And while that doesn't sound very complimentary, that's exactly what Paul is saying. I have you in my heart. From the, I, I love you in my gut. Everything about me is filled with love for you. And how many of us can say that about each other? That from the core of my being, from the very depths of my soul, or to be more graphic, from my bowels, what Paul says in verse 8, I love you. I love you. Because that is the attitude, folks, that the church should have because it's the attitude that, take us, that takes the focus off of ourselves, off of our circumstances, and puts it, number one, on the Lord, and number two, on others. And this is not a foot-dragging, begrudgingly, well, I guess I really ought to type of love. That's a pseudo-love. That's nothing in the world but a, but a false front of politeness that's really masked by a heart of smoldering resentment, frozen in sullen indifference. Listen, no matter the problem that you have with each other, no matter the problem that Paul had with the church at Philippi, Paul's love for them was not only extensive, it was in, in, intensive, meaning that it not only showed itself on the outside, but it was able to show itself on the outside because Paul first loved them to the depths of his soul. And again, folks, that's not something that you and I earn. That's not something that you and I deserve. That's something we give each other because Paul says in the first part of verse 7, it's just right. It's just right that I feel this way of you. Listen, a child of God should never think any other way of another child of God, but, a, but I love you in my gut. My love for you starts there and comes out. That's the love Paul had for Philippi. 
Listen, you cannot have ill-willed feelings in the depths of your being for someone and then look at them and say, I love you. That's improper. But I'll go, any deep, I'll go, any, I'll go a little deeper than that, that it is more improper to have those ill-willed feelings for somebody in the first place. Paul says, I have joy. I'm sitting in prison, shackled to a Roman soldier, but I have joy because I love you in my gut. You say, well, Pastor, I don't understand that. Then get your mind off of circumstances and get your mind on the Lord, and you'll understand it. Even when people, listen, church, even when people disappoint, even when people disappoint, which, which they always will, right? People will always disappoint. Even the most well-meaning, even the most a holy person that loves the Lord with all of his heart, mind, soul, and strength will disappoint. But it is still right for you and I to have the deep-seated love and affection for those people, no matter what. And then Paul talks about in verse 7, the defense, apologia is where we get our English word apology or apologetics. He says in the defense and in the confirmation of the gospel, Paul's either talking about his prison time or he's talking about the persecution that he, that he had because of the ministry. He says, you were there. You were there to encourage me. And notice what he says at the end of verse 7. Ye are all partakers of my grace. Ye are all partakers of my grace. You know, Paul knew that no matter what happened, no matter what happened in his life, Paul knew that the people of Philippi were with him. We need to have no better hope in each other because of our love for each other that no matter what happens, we're here for each other. And that doesn't happen, folks, when people don't love each other from the gut. When we don't love each other from the very seat of who we are, we can't say that I'm always here. But when we do love each other from the gut, Paul's hope and Paul's joy was that ye are partakers of my grace. You're always with me. You're always with me. Folks, listen. If you can't count on anybody else on earth, if you can't count on anybody else, you should always be able to count on your church family. If you can't find love anywhere else on this earth, you ought to be able to find it in these walls. Because every one of us need to have the attitude that I love you from the depths of my soul. I have affection for you from the depths of my soul, not because you deserve it, but because it's right. It's just the right thing to do, church. And to do any other thing is wrong. To have any other attitude toward each other other than love from the gut is wrong. I know I drive you crazy. Tell me something I don't already know. And sometimes you drive me crazy. Sometimes I listen to you and I say, 
what? Well, bless their heart. Right? And sometimes you listen to me and then you grab me after church and you say, I think you were hard on Naomi. but we need to love each other from the gut because it's just the right thing to do, church. And Paul said, I love you from the depths of my soul because it's the right thing to do, and that brought and brings me joy. It brings me joy to love you because when you love each other like that, you're not so wrapped up in yourself. You're wrapped up in Jesus, and you're wrapped up in others. And that's what brings you joy. And then Paul says in verse 8, For this is my record, how greatly I long after you in the bowels of Jesus Christ. Paul then turns to God as his witness and said, If you don't believe me, God can testify to my conscience. And the testimony that God will have to my conscience is that I love you in my bowels. Splechnon in the Greek, and it's, and it's translated in Acts chapter 1, verse 18, you guessed it, as intestines. God is my witness that my love for you runs deep. Church, listen, for every one of us, for each other, our love for each other, for the Lord, number one, and our love for one another needs to run deep. And we don't need quite to be so quick to be judgmental to each other. We don't need to be quite so quick to be hateful to each other. We don't need to be quite so quick to be smart eloquently with each other, to be unkind with each other, but to love each other from the depths of our soul. And that will bring you joy. That will bring you joy. Find your joy in loving others. And all of this leads to the inescapable conclusion that in the fellowship of God's people should be the fellowship of joy. The world has to find their joy. Non-Christians have to find their joy outside. We find our joy from within. The person and the work of Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit within us gives us our joy and He allows us to love each other, which for Paul brought joy. And despite all the inevitable sorrows, all the inevitable disappointments, all the inevitable pains of life, there can be joy, church, when you look at each other with joy and you intercede for one another and you participate in one another's love and you say, I'm going to overlook your sin, I'm going to overlook your mistake because I know God's not done with you because I love you in the depths of my soul. Love each other, church. Love each other. Love God and love each other and you'll have joy. And get your focus off of the mundane material things and put your fo focus on Jesus Christ and you'll have joy. Let's bow our heads in prayer. Father, Father, we thank you that we can have absolute joy. We thank you, Father, that we find our contentment in you. We praise you and thank you, Father, that 
that the joy that we can experience is your joy, it's not ours, and it's produced in us by the work of the Holy Spirit. And Father, we thank you that joy can be a reality in the life of a believer. Father, forgive us for the times that we have failed in these five elements of joy. These are the things that brought Paul joy. The joy of recollection. The joy of intercession. The joy of participation. The joy of anticipation. The joy of affection. And all those elements of joy, Father, we know are wrapped up in others, not ourselves. Father, you tell us to love the Lord our God with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, and then follow it up from that and love your neighbor as yourself. Father, help us to have that deep-seated joy. Help us to love each other from the depths of our being, and it all starts as we love you properly. Because, Father, it's just right. It's just right. Father, we thank you and we praise you. The Lord Jesus Christ. We thank you, Father, that he loved us and gave himself for us. Thank you for grace. Thank you for this time that we've had together in your word. Praise you and thank you. In Christ's name. Amen. to Divine Truth Podcast. We pray that the exposition of the Word of God was a spiritual blessing to you. Again, for more information about Emmanuel Baptist Church, please visit www.ebcmineral.com. You can also find us on Facebook at EBC Mineral. Our Lord's Day services are 10 a.m. and 11 a.m. Sunday morning and 6.30 Sunday evening. We also have a Wednesday evening service at 6.30. We here at Emmanuel Baptist Church pray that God's divine truth would be proclaimed always from the cross, through the church, and to the world until Christ come. And now from all of us here at Emmanuel Baptist Church and Divine Truth, thank you so much for listening and please stay tuned for further episodes. God bless you.